Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast. Long go, far away, chapter 16. Do you think the snake did rear up at his toddler sister, or she just instinctively knew it was a cuckoo, or a dangerous thing? I kind of had a hunch that maybe, you know, there is an instinct around snakes, and it's kind of cool to think that maybe a toddler knows that instinctively, but maybe not. Who knows? Um, no conversation today, no comments, so I'm happy to just skip along and keep reading chapter 17, which is called A Boy's Animism. These serpent memories, particularly the enduring image of that black serpent, which when recalled resorts most vividly the the emotion experienced at the time, serves to remind me of a subject not yet mentioned in my narrative. This is animism, or that sense of something in nature, which to the enlightened or civilized man is not there. And in the civilized man's child, if it be admitted that he has it at all, is but a faint survival of a phase of the primitive mind. And by animism, I do not mean the theory of a soul in nature, but the tendency or impulse or instinct in which all myth originates, to animate all things. The projection of ourselves into nature, the sense and apprehension of an intelligence like our own, but more powerful in all visible things. It persists and lives in many of us, I imagine, more than we like to think, or more than we know, especially in those born and bred amidst rural surroundings. Uh, rural surroundings. Where was that? I just lost my space. Rural surroundings, where there are hills and woods and rocks and streams and waterfalls, these being the conditions which are most favourable to it, the scenes which have inherited associations for us, as Herbert Spencer has said. In large towns and all populous places where nature has been tamed until it appears like a part of man's work, almost as artificial as the buildings he inhabits, it withers and dies so early in life that its faint intimations are soon forgotten and we come to believe that we have never experienced them. That such a feeling can survive in any man, or that there ever was a time since his infancy when he could have regarded this visible world as anything but what it actually is, stage to which he has been summoned to play his brief but important part, with painted blue and green scenery for background, becomes incredible. Nevertheless, I know that in me, old as I am, this same primitive faculty which manifests itself in my early boyhood still persists, and in those early years was so powerful that I am almost afraid to say how deeply I was moved by it. It is difficult impossible, I am told, for any one to recall his boyhood exactly as it was. It could not have been what it seems to the adult mind, since we cannot escape from what we are, however great our detachment may be, and in going back we must take our present selves with us. The mind has taken a different colour, and this is thrown back upon our past. The poet has reversed the order of things when he tells us that We come trailing clouds of glory, 
which melt away and are lost as we proceed on our journey. The truth is that unless we belong to the order of those who crystallize or lose their souls on their passage, the clouds gather about us as we proceed, and as a cloud compellers, as cloud compellers, we travel on to the very end. Another difficulty in the way of those who write of their childhood is that unconscious artistry with will steal or sneak into erase unseemly lines and blots to retouch and colour and shade and falsify the picture. The poor, miserable autobiographer naturally desires to make his personality as interesting to the reader as it appears to himself. I feel this strongly in reading other men's recollections of their early years. There are, however, a few notable exceptions, the best one I know being Sergei Aksakov's history of his own childhood, and in his case, the picture was not falsified simply because the temper and tastes and passions of his early boyhood, his intense love of his mother, of nature and of all wilderness and of sport, endured unchanged in him to the end and kept him a boy in heart, able after long years to revive the past mentally and picture it in its true fresh original colours. And I can say of myself with regard to this primitive faculty and emotion, this sense of the supernatural in natural things, as I have called it, that I am on safe ground for the same reason. The feeling has never been wholly outlived, and I will add probably to the disgust of some rigidly orthodox reader that these are childish things which I have no desire to put away. The first intimations of the feeling are beyond recall. I only know that my memory takes me back to a time when I was unconscious of any such element in nature, when the delight I experienced in all natural things was purely physical. I rejoiced in colours, scents, sounds, in taste and touch, the blue of the sky, the verdure of earth, the sparkle of sunlight on water, the taste of milk, of fruit, of honey, the smell of dry or moist soil, of wind and rain, of herbs and flowers, the mere feel of a blade of grass made me happy. And there were certain sounds and perfumes and above all certain colours in flowers and in plumage and eggs of birds, such as the purple polished shell of a tinamou's egg, which intoxicated me with delight. When riding on the plane, I discovered a patch of scarlet verbenas in full bloom, the creeping plants covering an area of several yards with a moist green sward sprinkled abundantly with the shining flower bosses. I would throw myself from my pony with a cry of joy to lie on the turf among them and feast my sight on their brilliant colour. It was not, I think, till my eighth year that I began to distinctly, be distinctly conscious of something more than this mere childish delight in nature. It may have been there all the time, from infancy, I don't know, but when I began to know it consciously, it was as if some hand had surreptitiously dropped something into the honeyed cup which gave it a certain time a new flavour. It gave me little thrills, often purely pleasurable, at other times startling, and there were occasions when it became so poignant as to frighten me. The sight of a magnificent sunset was sometimes almost more than I could endure, and made me wish to hide myself away, but when the feeling was roused by the sight of a small and beautiful or singular object, such as a flower, its sole effect was to intensify the object's loveliness. There were many flowers which produced this effect in but a slight degree, and as I grew up and the animistic sense lost its intensity, these too lost their magic and were almost like other flowers which had never had it. There were others which never lost 
what, for want of a better word, I have just called their magic. And of these, I will give an account of one. I was about nine years old, perhaps a month or two more, when during one of my rambles on horseback, I found a dis- at a distance of two or three miles from home a flower that was new to me. The plant, a little over a foot in height, was growing in the shelter of some large cardoon thistle or wild artichoke bushes. It had three stalks clothed in long, narrow, sharply pointed leaves which were downy, soft to the feel, like the leaves of our great mullein, and pale green in colour. All three stems were crowned with clusters of flowers, the single flower a little larger than that of the red valerian, of a pale red hue and a peculiar shape, as each small pointed petal had a fold or twist at the end. Altogether it was slightly singular in appearance and pretty, though not to be compared with scores of other flowers in the plains for beauty. Nevertheless, it had an extraordinary fascination for me, and from the moment of its discovery it became one of my sacred flowers. From that time onwards, when riding on the plain, I was always on the lookout for it, and as a rule I found three or four plants in a season, but never more than one at any spot. They were usually miles apart. On first discovering it, I took a spray to show my mother and was strangely disappointed that she admired it merely because it was a pretty flower seen for the first time. I had actually hoped to hear from her some word which would have revealed to me why I thought so much of it. Now it appeared as if it was no more to her than any other pretty flower, and even less than some she was peculiarly fond of, such as the fragrant little lily called Virgin's Tears, the scented pure white and the rose-coloured verbenas, and several others. Strange that she, who alone seemed always to know what was in my mind, and who loved all beautiful things, especially flowers, should have failed to see what I had found in it. Years later, when she had left us, and when I had grown almost to manhood, and we were living in another place, I found that we had as a neighbour a Belgian gentleman who was a botanist. I could not find a specimen of my plant to show him, but gave him a minute description of it as an annual with very large, tough, permanent roots. Also that it exuded a thick, milky juice when the stem was broken and produced its yellow seeds in a long, cylindrical, sharply pointed pod full of bright, silvery down. And I gave him sketches of the flower and leaf. He succeeded in finding it in his books. The species had been known upwards of 30 years and the discoverer, who happened to be an Englishman, had sent seed and roots to his to the botanical societies abroad he corresponded with. The species had been named after him, and it was to be found now growing in some of the botanical gardens of Europe. All this information was not enough to satisfy me. There was nothing about the man in his books, so I went to ask my father to ask him if he had ever known or heard of an Englishman of that name in the country. Yes, he said he had known him well. He was a merchant in Vanaceres, a nice gentleman, gentle-mannered man, a bachelor and something of a recluse in his private house where he lived alone and spent all his weekends and holidays roaming about the plains with his vasculum in search of rare plants. He had been long dead, oh, quite twenty or twenty-five years. I was sorry that he was dead and was haunted with a desire to find out his resting place so as to plant the flower that bore his name on his grave. He surely, when he discovered it, must have had that feeling which I had experienced when I first beheld it, and could never describe, and perhaps the presence of those deep, ever-living roots near his bones, and of the flower in the sunshine above him, would bring him a beautiful memory in a dream, if ever a dream visited him in his long, unawakening sleep. 
No doubt in cases of this kind, when a first impression and the emotion accompanying it endures through life, the feeling changes somewhat with time. Imagination has worked on it and has had its effect. Nevertheless, the endurance of the image and emotion serves to show how powerful the mind was moved in the first instance. I have related this because there were interesting circumstances connected with it, but there were other flowers which produced a similar feeling, which when recalled bring back the original emotion, and I would gladly travel many miles any day to look again at any one of them. Uh, Any one of them. The feeling, however, was evoked more powerfully by trees than by even the most supernatural of my flowers. It varied in power according to time and place and the appearance of the tree or trees, and always affected me most on moonlit nights. Frequently, after I had first begun to experience it consciously, I would go out of my way to meet it, and I used to steal out of the house alone when the moon was at its full to stand silent and motionless near some group of large trees, gazing at the dusky green foliage, silvered by the beams, and at such times the sense of mystery would grow until a sensation of delight would change to fear, and the fear increase until it was no longer to be born, and I would hastily escape to recover the sense of reality and safety indoors where there was light and company. Yet, on the very next night, I would steal out again and go to the spot where the effect was strongest, which was usually among the large locusts or white acacia trees, which gave the name of Las Acacias to our place. The loose, feathery foliage on moonlit nights had a peculiarly hoary aspect that made this tree seem more intensely alive than others, more conscious of my presence and watchful of me. I never spoke of these feelings to others, not even to my mother, notwithstanding that she was always in perfect sympathy with me with regard to my love of nature. The reason of my silence was, I think, my powerlessness to convey in words what I felt, but I imagine it would be correct to describe the sensation experienced on those moonlit nights among the trees as something similar to the feeling a person would have if visited by a supernatural being, if he was perfectly convinced that it was there in his presence, albeit silent and unseen, intently regarding him and divining every thought in his mind, he would be thrilled to the marrow but not terrified if he knew that it would take no visible shape nor speak to him out of the silence. This faculty or instinct of the drawing of the dawning mind is or has always seemed to me essentially religious in character. Undoubtedly, it is the root of all nature worship from fetishism to the highest pantheistic development. It was more to me in those early days than all the religious teaching I received from my mother. Whatever she told me about our relations with the Supreme Being, I believed implicitly, just as I believed everything else she told me, and as I believed that two and two make four, and that the world is round in spite of its flat appearance, also that it is travelling through space and revolving around the sun instead of standing still, with the sun going around it, as one would imagine, But apart from the fact that the powers above would save me in the end from extinction, which was a great consolation, these teachings did not touch my heart as it was touched and thrilled by something nearer, more intimate in nature, not only in moonlit trees or in a flower or serpent, but in certain exquisite moments and moods, and in certain aspects of nature in every grass and in all things animate and inanimate. It is not my wish to create the impression that I am a peculiar 
person in this matter. On the contrary, it is my belief that the animistic instinct, if a mental faculty can be so called, exists and persists in many persons, and that I differ from others, only in looking steadily at it and taking it for what it is, also in exhibiting it to the reader, naked and without a fig leaf expressed, to use a Baconian phrase, when the religious Cowper confesses in the opening lines of his address to the famous Yardley Oak that the sense of awe and reverence in, inspired in him would have made him bow himself down and worship it, but for the happy fact that his mind was illumined with the knowledge of the truth, he is but saying what many feel without in most cases recognising the emotion for what it is, the sense of the supernatural in nature. And if they have grown up, as was the case with Cowper, with the image of an implacable anthropomorphic deity in their minds, a being who is ever jealously watching them to note which way their wandering thoughts are tending, they rigorously repress the instinctive feeling as a temptation of the evil one or as a lawless thought born of their own inherent sinfulness. Nevertheless, it is not uncommon to meet with instances of persons who appear able to reconcile their faith in revealed religion with their animistic emotion. I will give an instance, one of the most treasured memories of an old lady friend of mine, recently deceased, was of her visits, some sixty years or more ago, to a great country house where she met many of the distinguished people of that time and of her host, who was then old, the head of an ancient and distinguished family, and of his reverential feeling for his trees, his greatest pleasure was to sit out of doors of an evening in sight of the grand old trees in his park, and before going in he would walk round to visit them, one by one, and resting his hand on the bark, he would whisper a good night. He was convinced he confided to his young guest, who often accompanied him in these evening walks that they had intelligent souls and knew the encouraged and encouraged his devotion. There is nothing surprising to me in this, it is told here only because the one who cherished the, this feeling and belief was an orthodox Christian, a proudly, profoundly religious person. Also because my informant herself, who was also deeply religious, loved the memory of this old friend of her early life, mainly because of his feelings for trees, which she too cherished, believing, as she often told me, that trees and all living and growing things have souls. What has surprised me is that a form of tree worship is still found existing among a few of the inhabitants in some of the small rustic villages in out-of-the-world districts in England. Not such survivals as the apple tree folk songs and ceremonies of the West, which have long became meaningless, but something living which has a meaning for the mind, a survival such as our anthropologists go to the end of the earth to seek among barbarous and savage tribes. The animism which persists in the adult in these scientific times has been, so far, so much acted on and changed by dry light that it is scarcely recognisable in what is somewhat loosely or vaguely called a feeling for nature. It has become intertwined with the ascetic feeling and may be traced in a good deal of our poetic literature, particularly from the time of the first appearance of lyrical ballads, which put an end to the 18th century poetic convention and made the poet free to express what he really felt. But the feeling, whether expressed or not, was always there. Before the classic period, we find in Traherne a poetry which is distinctly animistic, with Christianity grafted on it. Wordsworth, 
pantheism is a sub- subtilized animism, but there are moments when his feeling is like that of a child or savage when he is convinced that the flower enjoys the air it breathes. I must apologize to the reader for having gone beyond my last, since I am not a student of literature nor Catholic in my literary tastes, and on such subjects can only say just what I feel, and this is that the survival of the sense of mystery or of the supernatural in nature is to me in our poetic literature like the ingredient of a salad which animates the whole, that the absence of that emotion has made a great portion of the 18th century poetic literature almost intolerable to me, so that I wish the little big man who dominated his age until a few months ago still had in Mr. Couth Corthope, one follower among us, had emigrated west when still young, leaving Windsor Forest as his only monument and sole and sufficient title to immortality. Lovely. All right, that's the chapter. Beautiful stuff. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.